Welcome to Reading Marx's Grinrisse with David Harvey. This course was recorded at the People's Forum in New York City in 2020. David Harvey is a distinguished professor at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. The page numbers Professor Harvey refers to are valid for the Penguin Classics edition. Course materials are available at peoplesforum.org slash This episode is Class 11, pages 759 through 880. Okay, so uh, welcome to uh, the penultimate uh, Grundrisse session. Um, I, have to, I have to report I'm working here under uh, a certain kind of difficulty because my copy of the Grundrisse has fallen apart. And it's now in several... <laughs> This, this happens to me periodically. I don't know how many copies of uh, Capital I've gone through this way, but um, anyway. So I will have to switch from kind of one part to another part if uh, lots of questions come up. Uh, the, the, the session this week is going to be a little bit um, awkward because... Uh, Pretty much everything after page uh, 800 or so is just Marx copying out things and saying he might want to use them later or something of that kind. Uh, so the substance is not uh, very thrilling. Um, and the thrilling part is really to some degree behind us, but it does continue and gradually peter out. Uh, but it does continue in a very interesting way. And, of course, the, the focus is uh, fixed capital. And it's, that's a very, it's a very interesting focus because uh, in the rest of Marx's work, you don't choose that particular kind of entree into uh, how to understand the dynamics of a capitalist mode of production. To some degree, it's not. It's surprising because uh, in classical political economy and Ricardo and all of that, the whole relationship between circulating capital and fixed capital is an anchor for pretty much everything they do. That was the big distinction which existed uh, in classical political economy. And Marx doesn't, generally speaking, use that distinction. The big distinction he uses is going to be between constant capital, that is, means of production, machinery, and, and, and raw materials on the one hand, so the constant capital and variable capital, which is uh, labor. Uh, so the, those are the two basic categories that Marx uses to dissect the capitalist mode of production. And they're not the categories that were available to him from classical political economy. He superimposes those categories uh, upon the field. But at the same time, he does recognize that there is some significance to this whole kind of question of fixed capital and circulating capital and that uh, he has to deal with it. And he deals with it at greater length and in greater intensity uh, in the Grundrisse. And of course, uh, it, it comes about in part because uh, the kind of uh, obsession that exists within capital for new technologies uh, actually involves the uh, coming into the to being of uh, fixed capital uh, based upon uh, science and technology 
and this is a, therefore a uh, you know for Marx a, a, a very important point because as he said earlier uh, the investigation of, of this uh, leads us to start to think uh, about the degree to which uh, the labor theory of value makes sense uh, when the role of fixed capital is to displace uh, labor power with uh, uh, science and technology and we have go through all of that uh, kind of stuff now uh, the continuity that exists between what has gone on now and what we're going to deal with this week is simply that of course fixed capital is also changing uh, the ratio that exists between uh, fixed capital and means of production on the one hand and labor power on the other and that uh, that then has a big impact upon how uh, the profit rate uh, works because the profit rate is in effect uh, the relationship between the amount of a surplus value uh, in relationship uh, to variable capital and uh, all of the means of uh, production, what Marx will later on call constant of variable capital versus surplus uh, capital. So he defines the rate of profit in these terms and then starts to sort of uh, analyze something about the rate of, of profit. But in preparation for that, I think there are a couple of issues uh, which arise in the analysis of the uh, value theory and all the rest of it and the application of uh, fixed capital. There are a couple of issues uh, that arise which I think we have to uh, bear in mind. Uh, the first point would be this, that the system that Marx is talking about in these earlier sections is a, a system uh, which is, uh, you know, dependent upon uh, a form of uh, production which is in effect mass production. I mean, there's no point in having sophisticated, automated uh, systems of production uh, if you're only going to produce, uh, you know, five items of uh, something. In other words, uh, the importation of fixed capital on the scale that Marx is talking about it, and particularly fixed capital, which is backed up by science and technology, only makes sense when you're talking about mass production. It makes sense uh, for, to think of this, for example, when you're thinking about automobile production. That, I think, is a very uh, obvious case in which over the last few years we've seen a lot of automation, and so uh, that, what Marx is talking about, makes sense in relationship to that. But there are many fields of, uh, of activity that uh, this does not make uh, uh, that much sense in. So there is a limitation, if you like, to... Uh, the importation of fixed capital on the scale, which he talks about earlier, uh, backed by science and technology, which is that you're going to have to deal with mass production. It also would follow that uh, this could only work if you're also dealing with mass consumption. Marx doesn't talk about that, but when I kind of mention the automobile industry, you have mass production, you have mass consumption. Uh, this is an industrial structure in which you would expect all of the tech all of the features that Marx described to be uh, in place. <clears throat> the second thing, and this is something that does crop up uh, a bit later, is that there is a limitation to the deployment of machinery, and Marx begins to make it fairly explicit what it is, 
uh, and, and, and does so particularly in volume one of Capital, but several times in the, in the sections that follow, uh, this will be mentioned. And it is simply this, that you only employ a machine when the cost of the machine is less than the labor you save by deploying the machine. In other words, <clears throat> if you have an extremely expensive machine uh, and uh, labor is uh, very cheap, then, you know, why wouldn't you just employ the labor? You don't need the machine because it's, it's not going, going to work. Now, this is an important point because it says that the, the, the way in which the machine works uh, depends a lot on its relationship uh, uh, to labor. And when labor is very cheap, uh, you won't necessarily need uh, or even want to uh, employ a machine. Uh, the example that Marx uses in Capital is to say, well, actually, when you start to look at uh, the, the, the deployment of uh, machine technologies, <clears throat> In an economy where there's a relative amount of uh, scarcity of labor, and the case that Marx looked at was the United States, where uh, there was a scarcity of labor in part because even though there was an imported population which was coming in and could join the labor force, they had the, the possibility of going out west and you know settled, setting up a homestead somewhere, and, and so you know in order to prevent uh, that that happening, you had to sort pay pretty high wages. So the wage rate in the United States was much higher than it was in Britain. And so Marx points out that technologies which uh, made sense to employ in the United States because of the scarcity of labor did not make sense in Britain where there was a surplus of labor and the wage rate was relatively low. So that becomes very uh, important. Now, in recent times, we've seen something similar, uh, which is, uh, in the 1990s in particular, uh, the Chinese often engaged uh, in their production practices in what's called reverse engineering. That uh, a, a process like an automobile plant, for example, which was, auto which was being automated uh, in Britain and Europe when uh, automobile production was taken to China, uh, the Chinese would not necessarily uh, use the automated thing, but they would disaggregate the production process and, and so that it could all be, you know, the bits and pieces could be made by, by uh, labor because labor was so cheap. So when labor is very cheap, then uh, the incentive to deploy machinery is less. Uh, when labor becomes scarcer, when labor becomes more militant and, and the like, the, uh, therefore, th those circumstances, uh, the machine makes sense. So there are uh, those limitations on the deployment of machines. One is that it has to be in the field of mass production and mass consumption. And the second is that it has to be in a, in a situation in which uh, the labor costs uh, are relatively high uh, compared to the machine costs. And of course, one of the things that happens is the cost of producing the machines goes down, it goes down, and as the cost of the machine goes down, so it becomes more rational uh, to deploy uh, the machinery. 
So this is also going to affect uh, uh, the rate of profit because what Marx does in both that section we read on, on uh, the, the value theory and what happens to the value theory as the machine comes in, assumed that there were no barriers to the deployment of machines. Uh, and we're going to largely assume that uh, in, uh, in this uh, section where we're dealing with uh, the falling rate of profit. The Marx then uh, picks up uh, the question of the falling rate of profit. Uh, and uh, I think uh, uh, this has something which is important for us uh, to look at. So on page 746, uh, he kind of says, well, actually, uh, what we start to see is that capital, he says, relates to itself as self-increasing value. Uh, that is the circulation process which goes on uh, is such uh, as uh, to uh, bring in surplus value, but surplus value into uh, the motion of capital, and it, it does so as profit. And that is what he then says a little bit further down on 746. That surplus value thus measured by the value of the presupposed capital, capital thus posited as a self-realizing value, is profit. And the product of capital then is profit. So that uh, this then also entails a certain shift. And this shift is, I think, significant because uh, what it entails is a movement away from considering the individual capitalist and the individual laborer to considering that the, 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 the whole social system as, uh, as a totality. And within that totality, the product of capital is profit. And that's what, that's what capital has to do, is to produce the profit. And as he says on 746 towards the bottom, this turns that cyclical kind of process that uh, I like to show. I think I've got it here, but you know what I mean, the, the cyclical kind of process. That, what, what Marx does is to kind of say, well, that process goes round and round and round, but it just doesn't repeat itself. It actually generates a profit, and the profit creates more profit so that it turns into a spiral. But that spiral is that the tendency is, uh, because it is changing technologies and the, the technology of production is changing and becoming more capital intensive, uh, and less labor intensive and labor is being displaced by, by uh, fixed capital and all the rest of it since that is all going on. Uh, what this does is to say other things being equal that the rate of profit is likely to fall over time uh, because less and less labor will be employed and if labor is the source of value, less and less value will be created and less and less surplus value will be created in relationship to the total capital which is invested. So, uh, so this is what he lays out on page 747. As he says, the rate of profit falls relative to the total value of the capital presupposed to production and of the part of capital acting as capital in production. So this is, uh, this is the basic thing. And you can see straight away what the logic is of the falling rate of uh, profit, that the deployment of more and more fixed capital uh, is going to improve the productivity of labor, you need less labor, less labor, less value, uh, less value, a, a falling rate of profit. 
but there is something uh, here that is uh, modifies this, and I think this is a this is an important caveat, and it's one which uh, is uh, rather significant. Uh, he puts it this way on page seven forty eight: a capital of one hundred with a profit of ten percent yields a smaller sum of profit than a capital of one thousand with a profit of two percent. If the larger capital's profit were only 1%, then the sum of its profit would be 10, uh, like that of the 10 times smaller capital. And so what this means is, in general terms, if the rate of profit declines for a larger capital, but not in relation to its size, then the gross profit mm -hmm. rises, although the rate of profit declines. Gross profit rises, although the rate of profit declines. If the profit rate declines relative to its size, then the gross profit remains the same as that of the smaller capital remains stationary. If the profit rate declines more than its size increases, then the gross profit of the larger capital decreases relative to the smaller one in proportion as its rate of profit declines. This, he says, is in every respect the most important law of modern political economy and the most essential for understanding the most difficult relations. Now, I want you to notice something here because there's a general uh, tendency in Marxist circles to talk about the falling rate of profit as the most important law of classical political economy and to cite this point. But notice what Marx is saying here is not that the falling rate of profit is the most essential law and the most important law. What is the most important law is the relationship between the gross profit, which can be rising or falling, in relationship to the falling rate of profit. So in other words, the falling rate of profit can produce an increasing uh, aggregate uh, output, uh, or it can have a diminished one. So this is the most important law which is the relationship between what I would call rate of, of profit and the mass of the profit which is produced. And that's a simpler way of, of using this term. Now, in, in volume three of Capital, Marx takes up this idea and repeats this idea. So it's not as if, uh, you know, this is something that is quirky to the Grindry. So, so let me just uh, read to you uh, from uh, 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 the law of the tendential fall in the rate of the general rate of profit. And this is in the original manuscripts. Where Marx kind of says, uh, says this, uh, the same laws, uh, which is uh, the pursuit of, uh, uh, of, of the optimal amount of uh, surplus value, the same laws, therefore, produce both a growing absolute mass of profit and a falling rate of profit. Uh, and then again, he says on the next page, he, he asks the question of how, how to present what he calls double-edged law of a decline in the rate of profit coupled with a simultaneous increase in the absolute mass of profit arising from the same causes. That is, the same process produces both results, a, a falling rate and an increasing mass. And he then goes on to say, 
uh, again on, on the next, next page, he says, on the other hand, however, the same reasons that produce an absolute decline in surplus value and hence profit on a capital of each hundred, thus also in the rate of profit reckoned as a percentage, bring about a growth in the absolute mass of the surplus labor, surplus value, and therefore profit. So this is, a, this is an important theme. Uh, which, which, which I think needs to be made a little bit more explicit. And it became, I think, doubly important to me because uh, early last year, there was an article that came out in the uh, Financial Times, uh, which talked about uh, the benefits, uh, distributive benefits that had uh, arisen out of quantitative easing. Now, I, along with a lot of other people, including even conservative figures like Theresa May and so on, figured that quantitative easing by the Bank of England uh, had actually uh, contributed uh, to increasing social inequality, that uh, uh, the money had been released uh, and it all got into the stock market, the stock market had gone up, uh, everybody was uh, rich, made out like bandits, whereas uh, poor people didn't benefit at all. So I thought uh, it uh, obvious that quantitative easing had increased social inequality. But the whole thrust of the Bank of England report was, no, that was not the case. That they had looked at very carefully what had happened between something like two, 2012 and 2016, something like that. They had looked very closely at the impacts of quantitative easing and decided that the impact uh, was higher on the bottom 10% of the population uh, compared to the impact on the top 10% of the population. So that uh, the argument that uh, quantitative easing, the creation of new money, had uh, actually increased social inequality was wrong, that it actually decreased social inequality. So I read this, this account of the report and I'm, I'm a bit shocked by it and upset by it, but they were serious researchers, so I assumed they were correct. And they were formally correct. But what they said right at the end of the report was they told you how much benefit the top 10% had received and how much benefit, in absolute terms, the bottom 10% had received. And it turned out the bottom 10% had received, on average, something like 3,200 uh, pounds a year extra benefit, which is around 10 pounds a week. Uh, the top 10%, on the other hand, had received 375,000 pounds extra during the period. And that was, uh, you know, it's, it's about 110, 120 pounds uh, a week. Now, you look at that and you say, well, but, you know, 10 pounds a week, what can you get with that? Uh, on the other hand, 300 and, yeah, 3,000 or 1,200 pounds a week, uh, which uh, the rich are getting is, is, very, is very significant. So the absolute amount, this is what Marx is talking about here, which is that when you look at the absolute amount, uh, the benefit to the top 10% is huge. But the, well, the Bank of England researchers have discovered that relative to the existing wealth of the top 10%, 
with 325,000 or whatever it was, pounds, was much percentage-wise less than the 3,000 pounds on, on, on the poor. Now, what this means is that the gap between the rich and the poor in Britain at that time was so huge that, that in fact, you know, you know, you'd have to give a, you know, another 20,000 to the ultra-rich in, uh, in order for them to appear to be greater. Now, what would you rather have? What position would you rather be in? Would you rather have 10 pounds and have uh, what Marx talks about, a 10% rate of return? Or would you rather have uh, a million pounds and a 2% rate of return? Um, obviously, the falling profit or the falling rate of interest in this case is, is you know, uh, doesn't matter to you just so much. And so the rich get rich because it's a very small increment on the already great richness they have um, gives them a huge amount of extra money compared to, to the lowest part. So what Marx is doing here is saying we have to be very careful when we're looking at these figures uh, to, say, differentiate between the mass of the profit which is received and the rate of the profit, because those who are you know, very well off uh, can improve their position with a very low rate of return, whereas those who are very poorly off may need a very high rate of return and not be much better off. I mean, uh, if you're earning almost nothing, it's not hard to imagine a rate of return, which is, you know, 50% rate of return, but it's only equivalent to one extra cup of coffee a week or something of that kind. So this distinction which Marx is making between rate and mass is important. And when he says that this is the most important law of, of political economy, remember, always remember that that law is not just simply the falling rate of profit, it's the law of falling rate and rising mass. And how we calculate and what we do with that law is very significant. So this is something which Marx injects into the discussion right away uh, in the Grundrisse. And as I've just mentioned, uh, as you see in, in the Capital Clay case, uh, in, in volume three of Capital, it's something which Marx can, continues to work with. Now I mentioned this also because um, I was getting into little arguments with people about the fallen rate of profit um, I tend to downplay it some, and some people kind of think it's the famous, you know, and when they talk about the falling rate of profit, they very often ignore the significance of the mass. Now, the significance of the mass now is, as I mentioned earlier, the deployment of fixed capital in production presumes mass production. It also presumes mass consumption. And one of the issues then is, where's the mass consumption going to come from? And if there's no mass consumption, then there's no value. So you've got to have a consumer uh, possibility there. So all of this, when you start to look at the totality, this relates to that and that relates to this. And, and so we have a, a, a situation here where actually in, 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 in the volume three of Capital, uh, Marx ends up sort of talking very much about uh, uh, the whole kind of problem of absorption of the mass, uh, the mass consumption, uh, where is it coming from? Well, it's partly through the formation of the world market, so from the Communist Manifesto onward through capital, and indeed also uh, from from uh, the Grundrisse, 
we see that capital has the necessity of forming the, forming the world market, uh, and that world market is partly a market for you know, gaining access to new raw materials and, and all the rest of it, but it's also a market for sales, and the mass consumption then becomes significant in relationship to the mass production, which allows for the fixed capital, which leads into all of the issues of falling rates of profit and leads into this. But there is a modification then on the falling rate of profit also from those two forces I've already mentioned, uh, which are that the machine has to be cheaper than, than the labor it displaces. Uh, and secondly, it has to be uh, mass production, mass consumption, and not just simply uh, all, all forms of uh, commodities. So Marx then set this up then, uh, uh, and, and uh, so this is one part of the, of, uh, of the analysis. But then uh, he immediately moves on, on 7, uh, 750, into saying, well, there are all sorts of things that go on in and around uh, the falling rate of profit, uh, which would modify uh, the argument and will attenuate, if you like, the contradiction that exists between falling rate and rising mass. Uh, one of the contradictions, of course, which is taken up here in some detail, is the idea of a massive crisis. So that what a massive crisis does is to devalue a lot of capital, <clears throat> and devalued capital is, capital is lost, and so the rate of profit can you know, recuperate on the basis of a great deal of uh, destruction and devaluation. Uh, one of the things that, of course, can happen in wartime is considerable destruction, devaluation, uh, and, uh, you know, again, that, that, that is one form of crisis, which you don't particularly want to uh, experience, uh, but nevertheless, what it does is clear the way for capital to resume uh, its, uh, its, its, its path of uh, uh, back, getting back. He says, uh, uh, these contradictions, which come out of the foreign rate of profit, lead to explosions crises in which momentary suspension of all labor and annihilation of a great part of the capital, that is the value destruction, violently lead it back to the point where it is enabled to go on, fully employing its productive powers without committing suicide. Uh, <clears throat> and then he goes on to say, yet these regularly recurring catastrophes lead to their repetition on a higher scale. And finally, he says, hopefully, to its violent overthrow. We can still look forward to that. It'll come, don't worry. Hang around long enough, it'll get over violently overthrown. There are moments in the developed movement of capital which delay this movement other than by crises. Now this is where it gets interesting. Such as the constant devaluation of part of the existing capital. Now this is something we've not really dealt with very much. It's hinted at in the Grundrisse, but not taken up very much, which is the whole kind of question of the valuation and devaluation, of particularly of fixed capital. Uh, what this, what this in, in means is this. I have a machine and I paid for it for a million, say a million pounds or something of that kind, to, to set up my machine. 
And then all of my rivals come along and, and a new machine comes in, which is much more efficient and much cheaper, and they can pick up that machine for half a million pounds. Now, I have to compete in the market. And I can't take my product to market and say to somebody, well, I know this is more expensive, but then I, I, I have a more expensive machine uh, than all those other people who are marketing what I'm selling at a much cheaper rate. You know, nobody's going to listen to you, of course. They're going to say, well, tough luck. I mean, I'm not going to buy your product. So, so you end up having, having to actually market at the average rate of fixed capital, which everybody else has, and they've all got the machine for half a million dollars, which is twice as efficient. And I've got the machine, uh, which cost a million dollars and which is nowhere near as efficient. So in effect, what I have to do is I have to devalue my machine. But I spent, I say I spent a million dollars and I started to depreciate it, but now I can't afford to depreciate it. I have to devalue it so that it comes down now. And because it's only half as efficient, I'm going to have to treat it as if uh, it's a machine which costs, say, 250,000 pounds instead of 500. Well, my rivals paid 500,000, but theirs is twice as, as, as efficient as mine. So I have to devalue the machine. And the devaluation of the machine uh, becomes a very significant uh, aspect of what Marx is talking about here, that if there are many uh, uh, producers around who have uh, low quality and very expensive machines, and soon uh, newcomers come in with much better, better machinery and much better products and all the rest of it, then uh, you're going to have you're going to have devaluation. So that competition. Uh, often, uh, coercive laws of competition often force devaluation of of, uh, of, of of your capital. So you know, and, and of course, if you start to look at what's going on in stock markets and things like that, obviously, if you've borrowed money from the stock market and you, you're dependent upon the value of uh, your your stock in a certain way, then the stock market crashes. Then. There's devaluation going on. So devaluation uh, is, is important. And, and, and uh, so the constant devaluation of a part of the existing capital is, however, the fact that Marx has already talked about, which is that to the degree that there is constant pressure for technological innovation, the technological innovation is going to devalue the older technologies and this becomes very significant, uh, when, particularly, of course, when we start looking at uh, invest, <coughs> investments in the built environment. Uh, we look at uh, the, the, the rail system or something of that kind, and we then say what happens when we build highways. Well, the rail system uh, is devalued. So there's a lot, of, a lot of devaluation going on in society at any one particular time. And Marx kind of says, so... Uh, instead of you imagining that the value is fixed or value is constantly being renegotiated depending upon a, the use of the fixed capital and, and therefore the whole kind of question of uh, the value of that fixed capital is whether it's personal to or, or embedded within a firm or whether it's fixed capital of an independent kind or fixed capital embedded in the land. The constant devaluation is going on all of the time. And so, so Marx kind of says, well, this is one of the things that reduces the rate of profit because then uh, the, the amount of, of, 
constant capital, the value of the constant capital, which is put in, is, is, is diminished because it's no longer as valuable as it was when I, when I first purchased it. So the constant devaluation becomes important. Um, the transformation of a great part of capital into fixed capital, which does not serve as agency of direct production. Uh, well, he's using the term fixed capital here, but, but really when he's kind of doing this, this is uh, fixed capital, which is uh, in effect uh, rather wastefully deployed uh, in relationship to direct production, which means it may be actually uh, deployed for, for consumption purposes or it may be deployed some, some, way, or some way or other. Uh, and then, then, then comes unproductive waste of a great portion of capital, etc. So unproductive waste, okay, you, know, you can build a bridge to nowhere or you can, you know, you get uh, seduced by some salesperson to purchase this uh, very glitzy looking machine, which turns out doesn't work at all. And so, you know, you'll, you'll get all those sorts of things. So there's a certain amount of wastage going on. Uh, and he says productively employed capital is always replaced doubly, as we have seen in that the positing of value by a productive capital presupposes a counter, counter value. And then he says the unproductive consumption of capital replaces it on one side, annihilates it on the other. So unproductive consumption. Uh, that is uh, the building of... Uh, uh, of, of uh, employment structures which uh, have nothing whatsoever to do uh, with production. Unproductive consumption is not necessarily uh, uh, bad in the sense that we actually require a lot of unproductive consumption uh, in order to service a population and all the rest of it. So, But capital that's invested in those spheres is not going to add to surplus value production. It's, if anything, going to subtract from surplus value production uh, because a certain point of it is you know, going to be siphoned off out of uh, the value producing uh, spiral uh, into unproductive uh, uses. Um, and then he says that the fall in the, of the rate of profit can further be delayed by the emission of existing deductions from profit, e.g. by lowering of taxes, reduction of ground rent, etc. But then he says, this is actually not our concern here. Uh, but clearly, <clears throat> if you um, change the tax regime, uh, particularly on depreciation of fixed capital, then you can uh, actually uh, depreciate it uh, fast uh, by the, under the tax rules. Uh, but then you may find that uh, that tax advantage is taken away by, by some... Uh, new government coming in and deciding to change the taxation regime. So there are all sorts of issues of that kind. Uh, um, the fall in the rate of profit likewise delayed. And this is a very important one because this is not actually incorporated uh, in the volume three discussion. The fall in the rate of profit likewise delayed by creation of new branches of production in which more direct labor in relation to capital is needed, or where the productive power of labor is not yet developed. Um, now, here is something which uh, 
is of general significance, not only for the argument that is being made here, but also for the prior argument about what happens to the value schema uh, as more and more fixed capital comes into the production process. Because what Marx is saying here is that uh, actually, if capital finds itself in a situation where uh, the only spheres of investment are those which are capital intensive and require a lot of fixed capital and all the rest of it, then why would it not go out and find a sphere uh, where there's very little capital employed and the relationship and, uh, and but, but, but a lot of labor? In other words, if there's a surplus of labor out there, which is going to be because fixed capital employed in is actually generating unemployment, if there's unemployed labor out there, uh, then what, we, what we, we've got to do is uh, the capital's going to start to sort of say, okay, there's no labor there, there's the, the possibility of uh, picking it up and employing it in some new sphere of production, which is labor intensive. And if it's labor intensive, it's going to produce a high rate of uh, surplus value. Uh, so the opening up of new spheres. Now, it turns out, and Marx himself uh, saw this to some degree, and you'll find it mentioned very briefly, very briefly in here, is that <clears throat> if there are forms of industry, new forms of industry get created which are, labor, which are deliberately labor-intensive because uh, labor is very cheap, uh, the possibility of extraction of surplus value is very high. The profit rate is going to be very high. Uh, and and uh, you can, you know, really, really do what you want with it. Now, uh, one of the things that uh, I've uh, argued in recent times is you start to look at forms of uh, consumption and production, which are uh, of a certain, a certain sort. Um, and I think that it's interesting that just right now, if you ask yourself the question, uh, who, who are all of the unemployed people due to this uh, coronavirus? Uh, we've got about 26 million people unemployed, probably it'll go to 30 million uh, very shortly. Uh, where, what fields are they most employed in? Unemployed in? Well, uh, a lot of them are actually employed in the hospitality industry. You don't say, all right, well, what is the hospitality industry? Uh, and uh, what, what kind of industry is that? It, and we, we kind of think of it and say, well, that's not really like making automobiles, is it? We say, well, yes, it is. It, it's a form of production. What's it producing? It's, it's producing an experience. And, and, and uh, you, you, you set up a, a, a package, a, a tour package, uh, so that you can go to the Bahamas for uh, six days or something like that, hotel, all that kind of thing, and you go there and you experience it, and you consume the experience. And the great thing about that experience is it's instantaneous, and so you experience it just by the time you're there, and it doesn't last. So it's ephemeral. So you, you have a sphere of production which is producing an ephemeral experience, People are being you know, brought in, and, and of course, in order to get there, you need to fly the airline. In order to stay there, you need to be in the hotel. Uh, when you get there, you're going to need to eat out, and so you're going to go to the restaurants. So you, you have a whole, whole uh, area of a productive activity, and I say it's productive because it's productive of surplus value. Many people would say, no, 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 that's services and it's irrelevant. Well, it's, yeah, okay, it's not the typical way in which we think of the working class. 
the working class we typically think of as the automobile workers, the miners, and this kind of stuff. And no, all of these people employed uh, in the hospitality industries are in fact engaged in productive activity and they're producing surplus value. And they're producing a lot of it. They're producing a huge amount of it, actually. So, but in Marx's time, was that a big industry? The answer was no, it wasn't a big industry at all. I mean, the ultra elite would always take the European tour and they would go to Venice and they would go to Athens and they'd go to Rome and all that kind of stuff. But that was just the upper classes did that. Mass tourism of the sort that, that has grown since World War II and it has expanded dramatically. So when we talk about the formation of these new fields in which, uh, which are labor intensive, you see around this going on around us all the time. And, and, and tourism, for example, since 2008, so the number of uh, international tourist trips has increased from something like, uh, I think it was something like 800 million to 1.4 billion. Uh, but now that's all shut down. Now we've got a huge crisis, economic crisis on our hands because all of the value that was being produced in there is no longer being produced there. But when you start to say, well, okay, they're producing value, a lot of value in, in that industry, but, but that's not the industry where the automation is taking place. What about the automobile company? What about the highly automated uh, automobile company that used to employ uh, 25,000 people in a factory and now employs maybe 2,000? What, 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 what about that? Well, Marx then kind of says, and here's the interesting thing, that there's going to be a transfer of value from the labor-intensive industries to the capital-intensive industries. So actually Marx then cites the idea that there could be a, uh, uh, an industry which employed zero labor, but which make a profit because there is an equalization of the rate of profit. And the equalization of the rate of profit siphons off you know, surplus value from those uh, industries where there's a lot of labor and very little, you know, massive capital, although, you know, to the, the industry which is, which is uh, capital intensive. So capital intensive industries get subsidized by labor intensive industries. And by investigating these forms of consumption and consumerism, uh, where you can somehow rather extract a great deal of surplus value uh, from, from, from a large labor force, that becomes very, very, very significant. So this I argument that, that Marx makes here, that the fall in the rate of profit is gonna be delayed by creation of new branches of production in which more direct labor in relation to capital is needed, or where the productive power of labor is not yet developed. That's, that's, that's a biggie. That's a real, real biggie. And Marx, I think, didn't quite appreciate how significant that was going to be over time. I mean, I would argue seriously that the, why, the reason why the profit rate can remain where it is has a lot to do with the development of exactly these kinds of uh, industri industrial structures and spheres of employment. Uh, and uh, I think it is fascinating right now to sort of look just at who is the unemployed right now where are they coming from? And how is the working class set up? So how is labor set up in those, in those fields? So when you look at those fields, of course, you're looking at temporary labor, you're looking at, uh, you know, so it's a very, this is a, this is a, this is a very important uh, uh, aspect of, 
uh, what is what is going on. Um, now there were various other explanations that Marx goes through. Ricardo's uh, theory, Adam Smith's theory, uh, and um, I think I mentioned last time. Uh, Marx's comment on Ricardo is that he flees from economics to seek refuge in organic chemistry. And he does that because uh, Ricardo kind of uh, argued there were diminishing returns to scale in agriculture, and that therefore the expansion of agriculture uh, was limited. And because it was limited uh, in a situation where population growth and capital growth was going on, you had a, ended up with a squeeze uh, in which, uh, uh, to begin with, the landlords who controlled the land would extract more and more rent because uh, of the demand for the land. Uh, and secondly, because they were extracting more and more in the way of rent and food becoming relatively scarce, you had to pay a higher wage because the wage was going to be connected to the price of bread and the price, pr price of, of consumables. So Ricardo kind of says, you, you're going to see a squeeze between rising rents on the one hand, rising wages on the other, and the, the, the possibility of capital maintaining a rate of profit in the middle there is kind of less and less and less. That was essentially Ricardo's uh, uh, argument. Uh, and uh, so he lays that out a bit, and then he, he, so he talks a little bit about some of the ways in which uh, uh, now, in Capital Marx also talked about uh, some of the other ways in which the uh, rate of profit could uh, uh, be offset. Uh, one of them was the technological innovation didn't only affect the, the labor input, uh, it can also accept, uh, affect uh, the capital input. The, the technological innovation in the production of means of production, for example, would reduce the value of constant capital. So there would not only be a reduction in the, the labor quotient, but also uh, the raw material quotient might become much reduced uh, by uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, by technological innovation uh, in the production of raw materials, the extraction of raw materials and, and, and the like. So what Marx has done then has, has been to sort of open up this whole kind of question of uh, the fallen rate of profit, but in, in effect, uh, doing it in a certain kind of way uh, and recognizing that the, uh, the fallen rate of profit and the rising mass uh, when, when connected to the possibility of capital finding new areas of, uh, of uh, consumerism and the like, uh, new markets, for example, abroad. He doesn't he just me doesn't mention that directly in this context here, though he does mention it elsewhere in the Grundrisse. So these are these are parts and parcels of, uh, of, of uh, uh, the argument. Um, now. The rest of, the, of this, uh, like I suggested, was not really um, very, very content-rich. Uh, um, he does, however, uh, 
have a few occasional asides, which I'd like to mention to you, and uh, we can uh, look at this uh, as we like. On page 776, he suddenly inserts a little commentary about the, the value theory, where he says, it has become apparent in the course of our presentation that value, which appeared as an abstraction, is possible only as such an abstraction as soon as money is posited. Money is the representation of values, remember. It's only when money is fulfilling its function as representation of value that value starts to actually become visible uh, or actually to have any, have any real, real, real content. So uh, value as an abstraction is possible only uh, as soon as money uh, is posited or money is working its way through the system. And, but this circulation of money in turn leads to capital. Hence can be fully developed only on the foundation of capital. So money can only be fully developed as money uh, in the context of circulation of capital, which then carries over to the definition of value. So what you see Marx saying here is that, okay, these, these, there's an inner relation between these three uh, features. This development, he says, therefore not only makes visible the historic, uh, historic character of forms, notice that, makes visible, uh, that we can only kind of get a sense of what value is about when capital seizes hold of money and uses it in the way it does. So it only makes it visible. Uh, the development, therefore, not only makes visible the historic character of forms, such as capital, which belong to a specific epoch of history, but also in its course, categories such as value, which appear as purely abstract. These show the historic foundation from which they're abstracted and on whose basis alone they can appear. Therefore, in this abstraction, and categories which belong more or less to all epochs, such as, for example, money, show the historic modifications which they undergo. The economic concept of value does not occur in antiquity. Value distinguished only juridically from pretium against fraud, etc. The concept of value is entirely peculiar to the most modern economy since it is the most abstract expression of capital itself and of the production resting on it. In the concept of value, its secret betrayed. Marx loves those kinds of little mysteries, you know. You, you, you say, okay, there's a mystery here. It's gonna get, uh, the secret is betrayed. But what he's, what he's really meaning is that, you know, we think of, we initially will think of value as something very abstract, something very kind of difficult to grasp. And it is difficult to grasp because it is, it is uh, immaterial. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, it has no direct physical uh, referent except in the form of money. But what Marx is saying is that through the money form, we started to intuit and understand what value might be 
because value lies behind exchange value and it's the exchanges and the value and, and the representation of those exchanges by the, in the money form, which leads to the postulate about the existence of value. It becomes even more so when money starts to be used as capital because money is just not used, you know, like I, you and I would use it, but it's being used in a very systematic way. So when he kind of says its secret is betrayed, there, there is, in a sense, by putting these three without reference to money and without reference to capital, you fail. You come up with, a, with, with, with an idealist abstraction and a concept which you just can't pin down, okay? The same would be true of money. That money is difficult, as we've seen through earlier passages, money is difficult to understand. But you can get a better understanding of it when you understand the role of money in between capital and value. And similarly, capital is hard to understand. Capital is something which is difficult. It's not easy. But you understand capital and, and its secret is betrayed when you see it in relation to money, which is the representation of value, and the value form, which you see is regulating in some way, somehow, the dynamics of this system. Now, there is going to be a discussion about the nature of the value theory. And I'm going to put my gloss on it in the following, in the following kind of way. That Marx has already said that there's a problem with the value theory as a metric. It doesn't make sense that, 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 that uh, somehow or other you have a labor theory of value, and so you go back into all that discussion of the labor theory of value, what does it mean? in a situation where uh, the machines are there and the science and the technology embedded in the machines and it all displaces labor and so what is it? So, so but I think at some point, as you will recall, Marx kind of said, so there is this tendency, but at the same time, capital insists on maintaining it as a metric. Well, it's not as a metric purely. And Marx actually says that actually what we have to do is to sort of look more closely and we see that value is both a metric and a source of economic and political power. Now, metric is not the same as source. The metric, yeah, is getting confused by all kinds of, in all kinds of ways. And in fact, Marx himself in volume three of Capital, Canis says basically the metric is, 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 is shot because the equalization of the rate of profit means that things don't trade at their value anyway. And in the Grundrisse, so two or three places, he kind of says, you know, forget the metric kind of story about what is, what is value. Forget that. And, and I think it's, it's, it's interesting. And I, but, but I think this is where, where Marx... Uh, tells us, uh, provides us with an idea about a particular technique, that you try to understand one thing in itself, and you fail. 
And if you go around and you take all these three different things and you took each three of them and tried to understand them in isolation from each other, you'd fail. Because they take only take on meaning in terms of the relation which exists between them. I think that's a very interesting way of proceeding and thinking. And, and I think that it's actually more general than just simply Marx doing it here. That when we, when we learn to try to understand things through their relations with other things and other processes, then we get a much better grasp on how to understand. And I think that, you know, it is those, those connectivities and those inner relationalities uh, which actually teach us. And this is where, again, Marx's concept of the totality lies in the background. So when Marx says the secret is betrayed, the secret is simply what this all looks like in terms of um, the relationality between these three key features capital, money, value. And this is what he lays out in this, uh, in this uh, interesting little sidebar. Um, these are the kinds of things that happen in these chap in these, these final pages as you go through and it's on and on and on about this and that and, that and this and, and just it's really just copying out uh, uh, long passages from classical political economy uh, and uh, sometimes um, Unfortunately, he gets back into the question of money around page 790 and goes on and on and on about different forms of money and ideal forms of money, um, which, uh, as you will remember from the money section, uh, the Grundrisse way at the beginning is not exactly uh, exciting territory to, 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 to be in. But I mean, you know, the sort of thing that he gets into a long debate about is kind of saying, well, uh, you know, um, money has to take on a very particular kind of form. It's not just simply about having money. You've got to have something which is, which is a tangible form of representation. So, okay, look at something like the coinage. And you've got the coinage, and you, you then say, well, okay, what metals should you put use? What happens? Okay, so pennies are copper, quarters are silver, Dollars are, are gold. Okay, so you, you end up you end up with something of that kind. <clears throat> what happens when say there's a shortage of copper in the world, and somebody looks at all of those pennies, which are have a strong copper input, and says, "Well, the best thing we can do is melt them all down because the value of copper is so so great." I mean, I actually, I think these days make it so that you can't do that, but but. But the point here is that Marx is kind of saying, well, what happens when the, when the, the market value of, say, uh, a silver uh, dollar uh, is more than more than a uh, dollar? The, the, the silver content is, is, is two dollars, and, and you're saying this represents one dollar. What are people going to do in a situation of that kind? So, so those are the kinds of issues that Marx is raising, which, uh, you know, I, I don't think... Uh, Hugely uh, interesting. Um, 
But we have something else that does, has already arisen, uh, and which I think starts also to explain uh, something. Uh, on page 817, again, he's always debating and discussing the Cardians and so on. Uh, and here he adds again to this question of value. Firstly, the determination of value by pure labor time takes place only on the foundation of the production of capital. Here he adds something. Hence the separation of the two classes. Now, the first part of that is going back to what we've already been talking about, that, that the determination of value by pure labor time takes place only on the foundation of the production of capital. That is when capital is well established and he's left the money side out of it. But here you go, the separation of the two classes. Now, now the question of class analysis and the role of the classes starts to become, I think, rather significant because production of capital is a class relation. And we've already analyzed it in terms of relation between alienated labor and alienated capital. So the class relation between the two is very significant. So to some degree, the whole kind of question of production of capital cannot be analyzed independent of the question of uh, the question, the question of, uh, uh, of classes. Um, <clears throat> so he goes back on 818 and says, well, okay, uh, labor time is the measure of value. He, he keeps coming back to that. It's like he wants to keep it there, but on the other hand, he can't keep it there any longer. And so it's... Uh, uh, and here on 819, uh, he takes up one of the things I was talking about earlier, which is the relationship between machinery and surplus labor. First case, the value of the machinery equal to the value of the labor capacity it replaces. And then he goes through a few of these kinds of things. Uh, and uh, so he says on the bottom of page 820, the introduction of machinery can take place only if the rate of surplus labor time does not merely remain the same, i.e. grow relative <clears throat> to the living labor employed, but if it grows at a greater rate than the relation between the value of the machinery and the value of the dismissed workers. So again, it's the question of uh, what, what do you save by labor-saving innovation relative to the cost of the machine? Uh, and uh, so he's playing around with, with some of these uh, ideas. Uh, I, I think he, you know, there are, there are some aspects of contemporary capitalism where you know you think you think that uh, new things have happened and uh, this is a big breakthrough, and you go back and you find Marx is already writing about it in 1858, and you already understood uh, a great deal about it. Um, and he says on 825, 
the relation of fixed capital to circulating grows constantly for two reasons. One, the tendency of mechanical improvement to throw on machinery more and more the work of production. Two, the improvement of the means of transport and the consequent diminution of the stock of raw material in the manufacturer's hands waiting for use. Then he goes on to say, formerly when coals and cotton came by water, the uncertainty and irregularity of supply forced capitalists to keep on hand two or three months consumption. Now a railway brings it to him week by week, or rather day by day from the port or the mine. Under such circumstances, I fully anticipate that in a very few years, the fixed capital instead of its present proportion will be six or seven or even 10 to one in the circulating. Now what he's describing here is what we now would call a just in time system. That when transport and communications become such, you save on inventories because if capital is not moving, it's devalued. He doesn't mention that here, but he mentioned that earlier. If capital is not moving, it's devalued. Uh, if it's just sitting uh, as an inventory for two or three months because you've got to be sure that you've always got access uh, to your raw materials, if that's the case, then that's a, a waste. That's a lot of waste. That's capital being devalued. Well, okay, so you replace the barge and all that, and the horse and cart and all that kind of thing by, by a railroad. And the railroad brings you the stuff in and brings you whatever you want, uh, once a day or twice a day or something of that kind. And, 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 and so you don't have to carry the inventory anymore. So you actually save a lot of capital. So you don't lose capital uh, by keeping a lot of it uh, not in motion. You can keep all of your capital in motion to adjust in time. So uh, this is important. And, uh, uh, and as he said, goes on to say, particularly about the, the transport, uh, this is a very nice proof that under the rule of capital, the application of machinery does not shorten labor, but rather prolongs it. What it abbreviates is necessary labor, not the labor necessary for the capitalist. Since fixed capital becomes devalued to the extent that it's not used in production, its growth is linked with the tendency to make labor perpetual. Again, fixed capital is a big outlay. Not to use it full time is to lose value. And so what you do is you start to employ your labor 24 hours a day. And, and that then, uh, you know, gets you your, the value of your fixed capital back faster. But for in order for that to happen, you've got to have laborers who are going to be worked 24 hours a day. They don't do that, but they work two 12-hour shifts. So this is, again, a reply to one of those theses which we've had before, which is that you know, machinery doesn't lighten the load of labor. In fact, investment in fixed capital uh, makes the load of labor much harder because you're supposed to retire the value of this fixed capital as fast as you possibly can, which means employing it 24 hours a day. Um, yeah, he has an attack upon John Stuart Mill and all the rest of it, which I don't think is that exciting or that interesting.
But he then uh, comes back and starts to introduce something very, very briefly. Uh, well, um, this is on 851. And this is a kind of interesting point. Um, he suddenly says, in regard to interest, two things are to be examined. Now, by and large, he's not got into interest. He's mentioned it occasionally, but then usually kind of passed on as if it doesn't matter or he's going to deal with it later or somewhere else or something or other. But here he's actually getting down to the question of interest. In regard to interest, two things are to be examined. Firstly, the division of profit into interest and profit. So profit is going to be divided into the two segments, which is profit on industrial capital and interest on money capital. As a unity of both these, the English call it gross profit. The difference becomes perceptible, tangible, as soon as a class of moneyed capitalists comes to confront a class of industrial capitalists. Now, the notion of class in Marx is, as you probably would know, somewhat controversial, but here he's clearly articulating that there is something called a moneyed class. And that is different from industrial class. And those two classes are in confrontation confrontation between moneyed capitalists and industrial capitalists. Now, this is not a class struggle of the sort that is between capital and labor, but there is obviously, Marx is articulating the idea that there is a class struggle going on uh, between the moneyed capitalists and the industrial capitalists. Uh, and, and this is involved, he says, because capital itself becomes a commodity, or the commodity money is sold as capital. Thus, it is said that capital, like any other commodity, varies in price according to demand and supply. These then determine the rate of interest. Thus, here, capital as such enters into circulation. Now, I mentioned earlier that, among uh, the preceding discussions, that there is a way in which we can start to think about the circulation of interest-bearing capital as being connected to, but different from the circulation of fixed capital. That the circulation of interest-bearing capital is different from the circulation of capital in general, or is embedded within it, in much the same way that what Marx called small circulation, which is the circulation in which the laborer is done. So there are different circulatory processes, that I've, as I've indicated, within the overall circulation process of capital and they have to be blended into the total structure of the totality. So here is Marx introducing this idea of a circulation of money, uh, of interest-bearing capital, and that circulation of interest-bearing capital is actually created, is actually connected to a class formation, which is important, a class formation of moneyed capitalists. Moneyed capitalists and industrial capitalists can form two particular classes only because profit is capable of separating off into, the, into two branches of revenue. 
one branch of revenue is to the moneyed capitalists bearing interest. The other branch of revenue goes to the industrial capitalists as profit of enterprise. The two kinds of capitalists only express this fact. But the split has to be there. The separation of profit into two particular forms of revenue for two particular classes of, S, uh, of capitalists to be able to grow up on it. Then says something interesting. The form of interest is older than that of profit. Now, there's often a kind of notion that finance capital kind of followed on industrial capital and all the rest of it. But what Marx is saying here, no, it's the other way around. That actually industrial capitalists arose, if it arose out of anything, out of the circulation of interest-bearing capital where the moneyed capitalists were sitting there and had a certain amount of power. And he starts to talk about uh, some of this. And part of the historic form is, of course, lending of money to the producers. And often at usurious rates of interest. So that is an ancient form. The second historic form of interest, he says, is lending of capital to wealth which is engaged in consumption. I mean, the conspicuous consumption of the land in aristocracy and the conspicuous consumption of feudal lords and all the rest of it uh, was notorious. Well, where are they going to get their money from? Well, if they couldn't cover it, they went to the moneylender and they got some money. Now, money lending was one of those things that actually destroyed the, the feudal power. Uh, but anyway, so lending of capital to wealth which is engaged in consumption appears historically important here as itself a moment in the original rise of capital. In that the income and often the land too of the landed proprietors accumulates and becomes capitalized in the pockets of the usurer. This is one of the processes by which circulating capital or capital in the form of money comes to be concentrated in a class independent of the landed proprietors. The usurers played a very much more important role in the dissolution of the feudal order than the industrial capitalists did. In fact, the usurers paved the way for industrial capital by undermining the power of the feudal lords, by actually extracting and monetizing the assets of the lords, and, and that then you know, created a, a place in which capital could, could operate. So this idea then, um, and the importance of interest-bearing capital, uh, and Marx uh, is also aware that uh, this can also be connected to crisis formation. And he says a bit earlier on page 849, a periodical destruction of capital has become a necessary condition of any market rate of interest at all. And considered in that point of view, these awful visitations to which we are accustomed to look forward with so much disquiet and apprehension and which we are so anxious to avert may be nothing more than the natural and necessary corrective of an overgrown and bloated opulence. Now, he's quoting here, that's, a quote, that's not Marx, that's a quotation from McCulloch, but he's quoting it with, I think, some state of approval. 
uh, and he introduces the idea uh, of an ever-recurring plethora of capital, which is menaces uh, its existence. Uh, so here too, <clears throat> what you see is this, this idea of uh, the, the formation of a plethora of capital in the hands of the moneyed capitalists. So a lot of accumulation goes on there, which also adds to, by the way, to that other feature of the compensation for the falling rate of interest, uh, which is the rise of monopoly power. If you have monopoly power, then the falling rate of profit could be compensated simply by price fixing and price organization. And that price fixing uh, involves very much manipulations of the rate of interest. So, okay. Yeah, he says on May 52, historically, the form of industrial profit arises only after capital no longer appears alongside the independent worker. Profit thus appears originally determined by interest. But in the bourgeois economy, interest determined by profit and only one of the latter's parts. Hence, profit must be large enough to allow of a part of it branching off as interest. Historically, the inverse. This isn't the first time we've come across this notion of an inversion. Interest must have become so depressed that a part of the surplus gain could achieve independence as profit. There is a natural relation between wages and profit. Uh, but is there any between profit and interest? Same as that which is determined by the competition between these two classes arranged under these different forms of revenues. So, the real difference, he says, between profit and interest exists as the difference between a moneyed class of capitalists and an industrial class of capitalists. But in order that two such classes may come to confront one another, their double existence presupposes a divergence within the surplus value posited by capital. The important thing, however, is that both interest and profit express relations of capital. So as we go further and further into the question of what is capital and how does it work, we have to actually separate out profit and interest and ask the question, what is the juridical relation upon which interest rests and what profit of enterprise rests? What's the difference between them? What's the relation between them? Because that's going to be very important to understanding the dynamics of capital. And I think right now in the world, obviously, this is, uh, this, this is true. Uh, this then leads him to talk about merchant capital. But interestingly, he doesn't talk about merchant capital as a class. Uh, I think this is interesting because I will always be tempted to kind of say, well, in the same way that there's a moneyed class and the bankers, there's a, a merchant class and the merchant class. But I think Marx sees it as having a different positionality. He doesn't deny the historical role of merchant capital and like interest bearing capital, it precedes industrial capital. But here he is. 
talking about uh, the merchants, but not actually calling them a merchant class. What else is going on here? Okay. More stuff about money and uh, the role of money. Okay, so that's basically uh, it for all of these, uh, these pages. Um, there's some discussion of uh, Bastiat and Carey. Uh, and I think uh, that uh, we can deal with next time because I think there's an interesting aspect to it which will shed light a little bit on what Marx uh, has been doing. Um, there's a funny little notion of about uh, value which doesn't say very much. Marx obviously thought he wanted to say something more about it. <clears throat> but uh, And he says this section to be brought forward but he doesn't get anywhere with it. Um, and that's, uh, that's about it. So that's as far as I would want to go this week. There may be some issues that some of you want to raise in discussion and uh, I know it's, um, uh, this stuff is particularly, you know, with the exception of the foreign rate of profit, I think it's, and, 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 a few, and just a few sidebars on, on value and and class formation and all the rest of it. Uh, this gets us in effect to the end of uh, end of the volume. But let's let's see if there are any issues that people want to raise. And it would be helpful to me for, for next week, by the way, where I'll try and uh, do a, a sort of survey of the whole whole text to sort of uh, ask uh, about its general narrative structure and its general. Uh, yeah, appeal in a way uh, and and get to what I think are some of the issues uh, that, that, that we, we touched upon but I think we want to go back to which is this whole kind of question of uh, what is wealth is it disposable time or is it you know money and assets and all the rest of it and there is a, a an interesting article maybe I can try and extracted for you by George uh, Cafensis, who uh, uh, I think does a very good job of sort of discussing the relationship between the, the, the first part of what we were looking at, uh, which is the kind of collapse of the value theory, if you like, uh, under the impact of uh, science and technology, and the fallen rate of profit, and he does a very good job of but he also talks a lot about how uh, that first thesis about the collapse of the value theory, uh, in, a, in effect, uh, if value theory is particular to capital, and if capital collapses, if, if the value theory collapses, then that's the collapse of capital. And it's, it's around uh, some of the issues that were raised in big term in the Italian uh, autonomist uh, uh, movement uh, with the uh, some of the you know people like Tony Negri, Tronti, all these these uh, these these people uh, in this in, in this country, Harry Cleaver and so on, 
really dealing with the kind of question of zero work and and, and uh, what, what the possibility was uh, of the new technologies. And of course, the new technologies got turned around after the 1970s and used in a way to discipline labor, but that, that's a thing we can discuss uh, next time and I will probably take up uh, some, some issues on that uh, on my own account uh, next time. But let us go and see if there's any kind of immediate questions coming out of uh, this week's uh, readings. Okay. Well, maybe we should just call it a day then if there's no questions. But I would, I would like it if uh, people could just sort of jot down some issues they might like to see discussed for next week. Uh, next week, uh, as you know, is Marx's birthday on May 5th. So we'll have our last class on Marx's birthday. So we can celebrate the birthday. But to do that, uh, I'd like, I have got a few questions from uh, maybe three sessions ago. Uh, and I'll come back with, to them. But I would like uh, to get some more questions if you've got, if you've got them. It uh, could be about anything, uh, not just simply this. But I'll, I will... Uh, Perhaps uh, there is a there is a piece by me that's just come out in Jacobin, which I use some of the stuff from the Grundrisse uh, to uh, talk about some of the issues which which are implicit in how we might come out of this contemporary crisis. So, if you want to take a look at that, that would be good. Otherwise, I'll talk about it next week. All right. So we'll switch off here. <laughs>